In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson this week on the show writer director ryan griffin and executive producer nathan anderson are here to talk to us about lustration the narrative vr series that adapts griffin's comic book story of the same name into a multi-dimensional vr series which you can find on the meta quest then David Marklin drops by to tell us about this year's Midsummer Scream, the Halloween convention, coming up in Long Beach, California at the end of July. And finally, we settle in for a great conversation with Susanna Pollock, president of Games for Change, producers of On the Morning You Wake to the End of the World, and of the upcoming Games for Change Festival in New York City and online in mid-July that brings game makers and XR creators together with a focus on creating social impact through their work. So, you know, a uh, big episode. <laughs> I was going to make a diminutive, no, it, this, this, this is a big one. Uh, but before we get started, a couple of announcements. I nearly said quick, but uh, one, one of these won't go quick. First up, tickets are now on sale for The Dig, the Denver immersive gathering happening this November 4th through 6th in the Mile High City. This is an event unlike any other we've been a part of. And we here at the Immersive Experience Institute are proud to be closely partnered with the folks at Immersive Denver to bring this truly first of its kind. People like to throw that around and they're wrong, but we're right. First of its kind community event together. Over the course of the three days, we'll kick off with... Over the course of the three days, we'll kick off with a keynote from executive producer and creative director Ann Morrow-Johnson... Creative Director Sarah Thatcher and Director of Immersive Experience Michael Tara Garver of Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. And then the gathering will set off to explore Meowulf's Convergent Station together before settling into party mode inside the station. That Saturday, immersive creators from around Denver will be showcasing their work for our guests and will also be sending folks to Rabbit Hole Recreation Services, uh, the escape room. A company that has nothing but rave reviews uh, with special runs hosted by our friends from Room Escape Artist. That's thanks to the folks at the Morty app. If XR is your thing, the XR programming of the Denver Film Festival, curated by Landon Zackheim, who listeners know from the Overlook Festival, will be open for our attendees, and those who pick up VIP badges will be treated to David Byrne's Theater of the Mind presented by the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. And the night culminates in the Big Dig party and exploration of Denver's own sports castle, hosted by the folks at Non Plus Ultra. All that, plus behind-the-scenes tours, networking opportunities, and a city's worth of adventures. Oh yeah, there's, there's more programming to talk about on the horizon. All of this starts at the ridiculously low price of $150 for a standard pass and 250 for the VIP which has theater of the mind and priority access for scheduling. 
uh, these prices won't last forever. You can see it on the site. Uh, so lock your ticket in now if you want to get the best deal. How did Den Immersive Denver get the price so low? That's thanks to our partners, including generous support from Denver Arts and Venues. Look, I've been dreaming of an event like this since before we started doing summits, and I'm elated that in this year of all years, we're able to bring this to everyone at a price that matches what our subsidized passes have cost in the past. Check the show notes for the link, and I really hope to see you in Denver this November. But that's not the only community event that's happening. This Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific, we're having another virtual edition of NoPro's Office Hours that will take place in Nowhere, the browser-based video chat platform that we played around with during the pandemic and which everyone really enjoys uh, hanging out in. Uh, come tell us what you are working on slash need tips with, and you can connect with other creators and fans. Answer this month's icebreaker when you arrive. Eh, maybe not exactly when you arrive, but this is what we're going to pop up. I'm reading from the notes. It, it's all grammatical. Uh, what's the weirdest show or virtual world you've ever been to? Office hours, 4 p.m. Monday Pacific time in nowhere. Uh, check the show notes. There is uh, invites, uh, links for both Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, whichever one you like to make your plans in. All right. The sustaining backers of No Persinium are Ari Hurston, Chris Wolman, Eric Shamlin, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentes, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Mark Balthazar, Sidney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Uh, couldn't do this without you. We are almost six minutes in and we haven't gotten to anything yet and the episode is huge. So let's get to our first interview with the team behind Lustration. One of the things I've really enjoyed this year is the four-part series, Illustration, which can be found on the MetaQuest platform. This is an adaptation of a graphic novel of the same name about... Uh, it's kind of an afterlife noir and follows characters both in the real world and in this sort of purgatorial space as a large conspiracy about the afterlife unfolds. It's an absolutely fascinating world, and it's told in an absolutely fascinating way along parallel tracks inside of a VR app. Everyone who listens to the show knows that I am a huge fan of comic books, and I'm very, very eager to talk with folks who are playing in both the comics and the XR space. And we've got the creative team and the producer of Illustration here with us today. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for joining us. And if you could introduce yourselves so everyone knows who's who. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for, for having us. Um, I'm Ryan Griffin. I'm the writer-director of Illustration. Yeah, thanks, Noah. My name is Nathan Anderson. I'm one of the executive producers um, on the project and also the CEO at New Canvas. Before we get into the hows of Illustration, we should start with the what. So, Ryan, what's the story that you're building here? Uh, I think, look, I think you summed up pretty well as, as the idea of this noir story set within the afterlife. But for me, it also has another level or, or the reason why I'm wanting to tell this story is the lengths that anyone would go to for the ones they love. And so the story follows several different characters across 
um, their journeys and, and the things that they will do for love. There's, there's kind of almost the, the way you do this in the first four episodes and also in, in the first part of the comic, it's, it's very much a, a laying out of the set pieces. Like here's the characters and, and you get a real strong sense of who they are, but it, it also feels like you're, you're plugging them into this big sociological machine that's kind of, you know, and, and watching the characters get, get put through their paces. Um, is, is that one of the ways you you think of this about you know the the people inside processes yeah absolutely there's there's many different layers to um the storytelling there's one obviously the world for me is was a really big part of of this journey for me and a lot of the work that i do uh, i'd like to create different worlds you know i i grew up on on comic books, um, you know, animated TV series, you know, they were just they were just something for me to just you know cling to that that's something different. But find a way to have that connection to the world at the same time. Uh, and illustration for me is is very much uh, about that and and making sure that stays true. Then on top of that, it, you know, everything has to be character driven. So it, it is really how we see ourselves or how we project our, our own emotions onto a character as not only as a writer but also as as the audience and follow that through and and for me it's just a, it's just a fun ride to put put these type of characters and put um, put them through these situations in unique uh, worlds and locations I'm gonna start drifting us towards the, the 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 what and the process part of all this but I am curious illustration has been a comic and now it's this 360 animated piece um, that just to be clear for everyone, like you, you are inside. It's, it's not something you're just watching, but the, the, the piece surrounds you. It is, is a fully spatialized, but what medium did you, did you first envision this story and did it, did it start definitely as a comic or was it a short story you're writing or you're thinking of as a film? I'm always, I'm always curious uh, as to how things wind up traipsing along different mediums. Yeah, sure. So, um, a few years ago, um, I created a TV series called Clever Men, and that did really well and sort of sold around the world. And um, I had a lot of people going, well, look, you need to sort of have the your next project ready. And at that point, I had written uh, a pilot for a one-hour drama series of, of lustration and sort of took it to market. And everyone, everyone was reading the script and said, look, this is really – this is really exciting and this is different. Um, but their concerns were it's, it's high, it's high concept. It's high, it's, it's a large budget. And um, we're kind of at the stage of the, where the market is, if it is high budget, um, you need to kind of show a previous audience or, you know, have a, a long running IP. Um, and I was writing comic, uh, comic books for, the TV series Clever Man, and I approached the the same publisher and one of the partners on this um, Gestalt Publishing to uh, see if they were interested in, in making it into a comic that they were keen to do so. That was the first iteration of, of, of bringing this to life. And then when Nathan approached me to to do something in the VR space, this was something that I thought you know would could be a, you know the right fit for it because you know it gave 
the audience an opportunity to step inside a, a comic book and, and be in the world and feel the textures um, that we're so used to just turning the pages for, but to actually uh, immerse ourselves within it was something really exciting for me. Nathan, how did you step into this story? Did you know Ryan's work before? Did you know? Yeah, so um, it was quite an interesting journey. We um, So back in 2018, um, you know, I've, I've always been interested in, um, I guess, how we can evolve the storytelling medium in immersive um, spaces. And, and one of the things I identified kind of early on is that we need um, – we need to kind of uh, develop the sophistication and the craft of, of our story in this space. And I think, you know, anyone that's been in VR for a while will know that there's a lot of great tech demos and a lot of, you know, good uh, developers that are kind of, you know, that are, that are thinking creatively. But, um, you know, we're sort of moving to a stage now where we need we need sort of people that are focused purely on story and narrative to kind of start to work in the space. So, so that's sort of kind of a long way of saying that uh, we, we came up with a program that we... Um, you know, an artist residency where essentially, you know, we sort of said, look, let's let's bring in people that may not be currently working in in VR or immersive media, but you know that ha- that have great ideas and have talent, and let's work with them on a kind of a you know a, a residency program that was didn't have a set outcome. So we spent probably I think it was might have almost been nine months, um, you know, over the over the process, which was you know an immersion session where where Ryan and 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 the team, you know, we would just we would just have a look at a lot of different VR and, you know, give Ryan headsets and go like, go away, look at, you know, let's just look at what's out there. Let's see what's, you know, interesting. And, and so that process came, you know, went through and, and, and during that, um, you know, Ryan came back with and said, look, there's a couple of ideas I've gotten. And, and illustration jumped out as being something that was um, both had a lot of potential, but also was already underway. There was a comic there. We could sort of see the world and we could, it, it really lent uh, itself to what we thought was worth exploring in VR. So, it um it was a bit of a uh, it was it was certainly not a clear process from the outset you know when Ryan and I sat down and said let's do illustration it was more like let's let's find out what we can work on together and this project kind of bubbled up and um and yeah and just sort of going back to you know what you mentioned about the the story what I love about this and and really attracted me was this sense of a of a, of a fantasy context the afterlife which can you can meld all these cultures together and and without having it to be to be placed somewhere you know it's not a story set in Australia or a story set in, you know, any part of the world. It's actually a story set in humanity, if you like. And that's what's really interesting about this. I think there's a lot of opportunity to explore that further. Mm. Well, one of the things I think is interesting about the, the storytelling here is that things are unfolding on parallel tracks. And the way that is accomplished in the VR is to have there be like, you know, what three or four different frame you camera positions you could be looking at in any given episode and some of those take you to an entirely different place or some of them flip you from the real world to the afterlife so you can you can see things you know happening in one space and affecting the other and i was really fascinated by that being there at all it's it's not something that you would have in a film necessarily it's or, or TV, um, it's more game-like in some ways, but it does also remind me of the way stories can be told in comics. And lo and behold, there, right from the very first issue of the comic, the same kind of beats were happening, where actions were taking place, you know, on one side of the page and being reflected on the other. It's sort of storytelling in, in parallel. Um, what? What drove the choice to have that be a structure? Is 
this something thematic that you're 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 scratching at or yeah. you're interested in playing form? Um yeah, look, I, I think there's um it, it allows us to to play with a, a few different elements and genres within the storytelling. So, you know, on a broad blanket, um, you know, this is a a detective noir story, um, but in a, in a way that both the comic and the VR series has done, we've also looked at, you know, first in the pa- the pages in the comic, but also in the um, the way that the stories are told in the VR in, in individual episodes is that they kind of have a subgenre to it. So for, as an example is that episode two, you know, we lean on tropes of, you know, paranormal storytelling or, or horrors or, you know, uh, and we so we lean on those tropes and build the story, or, you know, with that in mind. Um, you know, later episodes kind of lean towards a thriller and episode one's kind of like your, your, your standard drama. So it just allowed, uh, you know, myself as a writer to, to sort of, you know, explore genres within within characters, I guess, is a, probably a way to look at it instead of it within episodes. Um, and you know, for, for me, that's just, it just makes the process a lot more fun. You're always, you know, trying something different. You know, it also makes it quite unique for the audience and whether they pick it up or if it's a subconscious thing. Um, you know, because I, I believe, like, you know, audiences are, are so clued on with storytelling these days. You, you really need to bring something, you know, refreshing and and structurally different for it to be um, more engaging than what, what we're used to. Um, yeah. So for me, it's, it, it's really about playing with the structure and, and um, the expectations of the audiences. I've been giving a lot of thought lately just to, like, how much material out there is just content and isn't actually, you know, story in the sense of anything that you would treasure, right? Like there's, there's something, there's something to, when we all fell in love with story or anyone, anyone who does fall in love with story, there's, there's something special or something, you know, magical about it on, on some level, it speaks to you deeply. And yet, because we have an entertainment industry that just needs content that you just see, there's this just wave after wave of just stuff and and stories that should feel uh, big and huge and special sometimes just wind up feeling like content because something's just got to get out the door and it's kind of kind of driving me nuts these days. So I, I I definitely hear you on the you know audiences are 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 savvy and you know you need to bring something to it. Yeah, on the, Part- I was just going to add so on that that multi perspective element. I think there's there's so much interesting stuff there that we almost didn't. It was a little bit by accident that we kind of came across it. We created a prototype in 2020 of this, which was a three and a half minutes um, single scene experience, but had multiple multiple perspectives and cameras in it. And that that sort of showed us something that was really interesting. And it, uh, I mentioned it a few times before, but it, it it goes to what I think immersive theatre can create for us, which is a really interesting blend of agency audience agency mixed with linear narrative and that that's a kind of an area which i feel this it starts to scratch out and, and explore is which is really important as well as how can we have you know linear narrative which essentially can have have this crafted cathartic journey but allow audiences to have their own 
sort of flavor of that and their own sense of agency and control over how they consume it. And if you look at a project like Sleep No More, you you know, you, you control where you want to view that from and you so you feel empowered by that, but but you're essentially still, you know, existing around a linear narrative that will happen, um, you know, around you at that point. And, and so that's, yeah, there's something really interesting in this, um, in this mix here that we want to explore further. And um, yeah, it certainly, it, it, it's created a lot of questions for people that come out of the experience. They don't know necessarily what's happened. And some people actually get quite anxious because they want to flip between all of the scenes, you know, all the viewpoints simultaneously. Um, so it's, it, I think that sort of agitation of the form will help us as we work out what, where narrative is going to sit in, in this immersive space. Well, and that I, that idea of audience agency within a linear narrative, uh, you hit the nail on the head by mentioning that's what's happening in Sleep No More. You're like, you don't have any narrative agency in that show, but because of where you choose to go, you get a particular experience of the story. And, you know, we've corresponded on this uh, in interview form before. And Ryan, you mentioned that, um, you know, uh, there's a quote you have here in traditional storytelling, my culture stories are not given, they are earned. And, and that's some of what's going on here too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's a, that's a very conscious decision. Um, it, it is something again, that I, I want to, um, sort of enforce in all the stories that I, I tell is, is I kind of feel like we shouldn't be making content that is kind of, you know, put on the TV or, or put on somewhere and then walk around and do your chores around the house while you, you know, uh, it, for me, like I, lo- I, I like shows that make me work or, or stories that make me work, um, that I have to sit there and listen to every little bit of it and make sure that I, I haven't, you know, I, I've got, you know, it's, it's almost like a puzzle. I've got to put it together. I've got to pay attention to every little bit of it, the performances, the way um, the story is structured. Um, you know, and, and I want to make sure that we, we put that forward in, in, in illustration as well. Um, that, uh, especially, you know, with the idea of this not being linear and that you forcing the, the audience to kind of explore a little bit and, and piece together the story, it, it makes them work. And, and it, and it is, it's the information that you glean from, you know, several viewings or, or flicking between each camera in a way it's kind of like a reward for, for, for digging deeper and, and wanting to understand more about the story. You mentioned performances for a second and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that your voice cast includes Kevin Conroy, who is, you know, the voice of Batman and Dante Basco from Avatar, the last airbender amongst other things. Some of us remember hook. Um, how'd you get this cast? That's a really incredible cast to like, to like pull for, you know, something that's happening in VR. Uh, yeah, maybe Nathan, you can, you can yeah, tell us Yeah, well, that. it's, I mean, I think it's a, it's sort of a two part process. It's, it's dare to dream, which, which Ryan had, he sort of put out some names of people that he'd love to work with. And it's just, so it's, it's, you know, putting, putting it out there and saying, what if, and then having an amazing production team. And there's uh, uh, one of our producers, Carolina Sorensen is just, is, is amazing at this. She can just work out how to get to people and, and position something in a way that, that they're interested in and, and talk to them about it. And I think the good thing about this space is there there is some interest from, you know, articulate artists who are kind of want, wanting to know more and, and Kevin and Dante and, 
and, and everyone on the team is kind of, you know, they're not doing this for money because it's not about money at this stage in the game, as we all know, but it's about exploring the art. And um, yeah, I think that sort of maybe sums it up. Dare, dare to dream and, and have a good producer and uh, and you'd be surprised what can happen sometimes. Now, am, am I wrong in saying that this is the first one of these that you guys have, have put together, uh, like this animated 360 spatialized storytelling piece? It's the yeah, it's the well, we we had the prototype that we we right. made, which is yeah, but but this is the the first um yeah the, the first iteration certainly of illustration, but and, and also in um yeah in animated uh, I guess immersive media um uh you know New Canvas has created projects a lot of different projects more so historically in live action so um so less in animation um but yeah this is this is it's the first iteration of this um. That, w- that we've worked on and um, yeah, but, but hopefully not the last. Now that you've got multiple episodes under your belts, um, what do you feel like you've learned about the spatialized storytelling component of this? Uh, because it's such a different medium, like, like bringing, bringing the animation into spatialized storytelling, having audience members inside the box and not just watching from a distance. It's, it's, it's unlike any other medium. What do you feel like you know now that you didn't when you when you kicked off? Um, look, I think the um, probably the biggest thing that I, I learned is like I first wanted the idea of um, like really making the audience work, but I, I also feel like there needs to be a level of hand-holding to an extent to, to make sure that the story is, is is a little clear for them and the path is, is there. Um, so I, I'd probably look at making sure there's more audio cues or that, um, you know, what we can achieve with camera position and stuff would be a little bit stronger. You know, we, we had, we did have some restrictions with the, the software and what, what we were capable of doing um, within that to tell a story. Um, so I, yeah, I think overall for me, it, it's, it's having enough to, to guide the audience, but not to really put them on rails and force them through the story. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's really finding that, that fine line between the two, I think, is the, the biggest uh, takeaway for me. Mm. Yeah, and I think that, so yeah, Ryan touched on it, that um, restrictions of the software. So we used a, a program called Quill, which is which is actually an amazing tool for, you know, essentially no-code deployment of, of Sixtoff VR. So, you know, if you're an artist out there and you want to create an environment, um, y- yeah, it's, it's great for that. And we were able to iterate and see lots of really cool things. I think we now know going forward that we might you know if we want to advance some of the functionality and just some of the workflow um animation components we'll need to move into a you know a game engine for this production but um one of the things i I, i've kind of known this for a while but i think it's just been reinforced through watching people experience illustration the the first four apps is that the social component of this is really important and you know, if you think about, if we're learning a lot about how live theatre or immersive theatre or these kind of immersive experiences can adapt, we've got to remember that some of the value in that is really about the the socialisation. So, 
you know, if it, going back to sleep no more, it's meeting in the bar before you go into the hotel or, and vice versa and going back and, and chatting with friends and, and seeing your friends. You might not be talking to them too much while you're in the experience, but you'll be sharing it together and then you'll be unpacking it together. And so we want to include that in future seasons. And we're looking at this now of, of, of a social foyer where you can gather um, that's themed, you know, and, and allows you to kind of meet with people and then go and watch the experience together or experience it, you know, together and then come back and, and, and discuss it as well. So that it's, for me, it's reinforced the value of socialization as we, t- you know, explore what these narrative formats will mean in immersive media. And, and, and I think that's really important going forward. So I want to, want to make sure we can infuse that in, in whatever way we can in the, new, in the future seasons. Yeah, I mean, that's, that'd be really interesting, particularly with the multi-track nature of what you've got, right? I mean, yeah. one of the great joys in immersive is going with a group of friends, getting split up, coming back together, and, you know, breaking the story down for each other, right? Like, and there are people who will go back and just like rewatch something and there are people who have been to sleep no more bazillion times. And there were people here in LA at the beginning of our little immersive renaissance who I'd run into was like, I've seen this show eight times. So I got all versions of it. I'm like, wow. <laughs> uh, Cause like for me, the fun was like sitting around with people afterwards and be like, well, what happened over here? Oh, that did. And then, you know, that was also part of the experience and that you're, you're thinking about building that in is, well, I, I, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> Thanks. You um, know, it, it sort of came out of watching people actually do it. So coming out of the experience and talking better. to each other and going, oh, so, oh, that's, that's who that person was, right? I didn't see that bit. And, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it actually uh, it reinforces and motivates social discussion, I think, because it's not, it's not the same for everyone. It's slightly different, which is, which is kind of interesting. Ryan, how does, how does that kind of mechanic make you think about uh, approaching the telling of the story and the exploring of the world? Um, look, I, I still think um, you hold it close to to where we're at at the moment. Um, for for me, yeah, it's it just enhances that that level of um, like for me that that was you know originally when we we first brought this together and thought in the VR space that's that was kind of where we wanted to take it from the, the start. Um, it's just about you know learning the rules in VR as we go to till we get to that point. Um, so it's something that's always been in our, our, our mind to, to find a way to achieve that. Cause it, for me, it, it is about, um, having the ability to kind of talk with everyone. I, I feel like the way that, um, you know, the, the binging of, of media these days kind of takes away a lot of that experience now. Like you don't kind of have that you know, the episode's going to drop on this day and then you chat to your friends before the next episode drops. You know, a lot of people kind of brush through an episode and then you've got to wait to see who's up at what point to, you know. Um, it, it takes away a lot of that social interaction, but you know, talking through apps or talking through story points and all that. So, um, yeah, if we can find a way to do that, um, you know, it just allows us to, to really structure the story to... Um, really push through talking points among um, the audience to, to really discuss post, you know, post the episodes. I know you've got your whole day ahead of you where we're, I'm in LA and you guys are in Australia. So we're, we're talking other side, you know, opposite sides of, of the morning as it were. So I just want to a quick wrap up here, just looking ahead, uh, Nathan, 
this is one of new canvas's projects are there other things on the horizon uh from the company we should be keeping an eye out for and also i guess i should ask you guys uh well, you know when might we see some more illustration coming down the pike yeah so hopefully it's uh it's not too far away we're, we're, from illustration perspective um where we're talking about and we've sort of planned out season two at the moment which as as i mentioned will have some different functionality social integration we want to uh include but we're also looking at um and, and ryan's looking at you know other platforms as well so uh, obviously hopefully more comics but but looking at even things like um how the animation workflow could um have a have a dual output for vr and potentially um you know uh, linear animation as well uh, and even things like um podcasts too so you know there's so much to unpack in this world and and ryan has you know built an amazing you know kind of depth to it that we that we think needs you know it really needs to kind of live in multiple platforms too so um we don't have any uh you know firm dates yet on when that and, and those different flavors and platforms will kind of come out but hopefully We'll have that soon. Um, and if anyone's you know interested, just just follow us on socials or, or uh, sign up on the Illustration site, illustration.co, and and we'll keep you posted. Um, in regards to other projects, yeah, we, we've got um, a few different projects in development. I think you know as as evidenced by Illustration, we're we're really interested in this kind of um, storytelling or narrative in immersive where it exists on the fringes of what's currently being made available. Though there's not a lot of um, you know, st- you know, advanced and sophisticated story in immersive media. So, illustration kind of does that. I think um, you know we've got other projects. One's a, a live action uh, or CG opera project. Um, there's there's a, a bunch of other different ones as well that are that are not uh, thematically connected, but are around the, the uniform idea of how do we expand the audience, how do we bring new people in, and and how do we start to to I think more accurately represent our demographic. You know, there's there's not enough interesting stories for people outside of kind of a uh, you know younger male um, uh, kind of demo at the moment. So we, we need to kind of embrace different um, voices and different um, different ways of of creating content here and immersive media, which will you know expand the market, which is something we're all very interested in as well. Um, so yeah, lots to lots to work on, um, but it's about choosing the right projects and, and giving them the love they deserve to make sure that they get you know that get to where they need to as well. Well, I'm definitely excited to see what you guys do because um, you're you're making interesting worlds and you're doing it in interesting ways. So, and that's kind of all I can ask for from the world. So. Thank you both. Thanks, uh, Illustration is in the MetaQuest store right now. You can uh, check it out. I think it's on the Oculus TV app. And uh, keep an eye on New Canvas. And uh, when there's more from them, I'm sure you'll hear about it from us. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks. Every year, it seems that Midsummer comes earlier each year. Not the uh, Midsummer in the Shakespearean sense of like you know that day in, that marks the beginning of summer, but I mean Midsummer Scream, which marks the beginning of spooky season here in Southern California. And indeed, as Southern California spooks, so spooks the nation. Joining us today to talk about this year's edition of Midsummer Scream, which is coming up on July 29th through the 31st, is. David Markland, 
who runs this whole haunted cavalcade. Hey, David. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah. How, how was that for an intro? I just improvised that. That's, that's I know great. Awesome. Good. Glad you liked it. Um, Hey man. So like, uh, you're, you're back in long beach and, uh, and it's, you, you guys were up and wait. Now I know you did stuff in Pasadena last year. Did you guys do midsummer last year? I can't even track what the hell's going no. on anymore. Like, no, you didn't. It's confusing. Cause you know, obviously everybody has COVID brain. They kind of forget time. I forgot we did two minutes ago. So, but no, I mean, this is our, we haven't had an event, our uh, big event since 2019. Nothing could really happen in 2020. We did like an online telethon type thing. Please excuse the guy who decided to start mowing his lawn right outside. Oh, don't worry. If it's not, if it's uh, not going to be on your end, it's going to be on mine. So, okay. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we did the telethon in 2020. And then in 2021, we didn't think we could do anything. And we were just planning for doing our, our Christmas event when things started to open up. And so we, we scurried and we put together an event called Awaken the Spirits which um, was just, was there like, because there was going to be a Halloween season in LA, we felt like it would be good to really promote that, which is what the event's really all about. Um, and uh, so we didn't call it Midsummer Scream. We called it Midsummer Scream Presents Awaken the Spirits. And that was in August of last year at the Pasadena Convention Center. So it's a lot, it's a lot to wrap around, but basically yeah. the way we look at it, we've been preparing for this year's Midsummer Scream for like three years now. And um, so you're going to have, for those who don't know, and we just jump in media race as we often do here. Uh, what's the full breadth of Midsummer Scream? Because people could say like, "Oh, it's a Halloween convention," but it's 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 a robust one. So, what are they going to find when they head on down to Long Beach? Yeah, I mean it's it's massive. It's hard to to like give an elevator pitch on it. It's um. It's three days of give like a freight elevator push on it. <laughs> the freight elevator packages three hundred and fifty spooky vendors selling it for everything from like apparel um, and collectibles for people who love horror, but also like masks and props and things for people who like to make haunted houses. We try to be, you know, we really like to inspire people to really up their Halloween game. Um, and then we have people who just like to live that sort of lifestyle year round, whether it's wearing black shirts, showing off their favorite horror characters. Or they, they love to just do spooky stuff, ghost hunting year-round. So that's our show floor. And then we have, uh, our like, one of our big features is the Hall of Shadows, which is oh, yes. a massive, basically it's a convention into itself where we're going to have over 1,500 houses set up um, for the weekend that are brought to us largely by home haunters from the SoCal area, which are the best home haunters in the world. And so these are walkthrough experiences. Some are just really elaborate displays. They have, you know, we have scare actors in them, um, all of it brought to you by these, you know, these local home haunters. Um, and, and then for those, outside for of those who haven't been, I got to say, like the Hall of Shadows is in and of itself amazing because there's this big space and it's dark and it it feels like you are wandering around a neighborhood where just every home is is just is just the the maze out front, uh, but it's it's truly a feat and and just one of the more spectacular things I've ever seen in a convention. Period. It's all experience uh, and all all. I mean the the vendors are great over like right next door, but like it's it's really intense. There's a there's a build that goes on for like the entire week ahead, right? 
Yeah, I mean, we have Rick West, who's, uh, you know, one of the founders and co-producer on the event. He spends the previous year going to as many home haunts as he can and trying to recruit people to come out and twist a lot of arms and uh, keeps in touch with them to come in to make sure they can bring something to us for Midsummer Scream. And um, this year, our our theme this year, even though we're always about Halloween, we're really trying to just go back to the basics and try to recreate our experiences as kids, especially as, you know, a kid of the 70s, remembering trick-or-treating then. Um, we're really trying to harken back to that. And we have a whole neighborhood being set up by um, CalHaunts, which is a Southern California-based uh, collective of haunters and that they share skills and stuff. And they're, you know, they've divvied it up amongst members to each have a different house. So they're trying to recreate an actual neighborhood within the Hall of Shadows, which is not even the haunts. It's it's like its own experience unto itself, which is the first thing you'll see. Uh, so it's supposed to feel like you are walking into like Burbank, you know, 1975 sort of is, is one way to approach it. And you'll be able to go trick-or-treating from door to door if you want. I love it. I love it. That's that's so rad. All right, what else you got on tap? And then we have uh, we have big presentations going on. We got a gazillion breakout rooms where we have uh, theater performances happening. Um, but then we have uh, our main stage. We have uh, on Saturday a big presentation that Kirk Hammett, big horror collector, but also really well known for being the lead guitarist for Metallica. I don't know if you've heard of them. Uh, small uh, local band, and yeah, you know, um, they've, they've, they've done they've done some work over the years. So, you know, um, yeah, and but he'll be there to interview the families of Bella Lugosi, Lon Chaney, Boris Karloff, and Vincent Price, uh, who the, the people who sort of lead the the brands and keep the histories of those families alive. Those people will be with with him up on stage as a big presentation, and on Sunday we have compo- a composers panel with. People who have composed, like Harry Manfredini, who did uh, Friday the 13th, John Massari, who did the Killer Clowns from Outer Space pan, you know, score, um, Christopher Young. Uh, it's just this crazy all-star lineup of the, some of the best composers uh, in film history, who, especially if they have uh, horror credits. Uh, that's, that's Sunday. And again, like at the same time as one, any one of these panels, we're having probably like two or three other panels or presentations going on, which... Uh, we like to think are we really want people to be challenged by choosing what they want to do at any given hour. Are they going to shop? Are they going to hit up the hollow shadows? Are they going to see one of several different, you know, we think really phenomenal panels or presentations each to me, the price of admission alone. Um, and then uh, on top of that, we've got a black cat lounge, which is where we have kittens running amok in, in, in a room uh, for people to go and cuddle and hopefully adopt some uh, with, with one of our partners, kitten rescue. Uh, and, uh, then we also, this year we've added, uh, a museum of Halloween, which is being, uh, curated. It's, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but basically we really want to show off different, uh, collections people have of Halloween memorabilia or collectibles or, um, just things that, you know, you'd, you'd want to probably have at your own home, hanging on your wall or on a shelf or just to play with, uh, which is going to be, it's, it's gearing up to be really something really cool and experience unto itself. How much have you been looking forward to to getting back to doing the full, the full deal? Because I, I could tell because you you did you did all that. There was some there's some trick or treat stuff you did, uh, uh, you know, last year. Um, you, you're someone who constantly you know is producing events. 
but this is your big baby. Uh, it, you know, like it is, is the biggest of your babies. I should say not like a big baby, although a, a giant baby would be terrifying <laughs> it, as well. It sometimes can be. Um, yeah. But, uh, so yeah, how, like how you, how's it feel to have it all coming back? I mean, this is kind of where it all began. And uh, like I said, we have been planning this for three years. So we're looking forward to um, showing off some of the ideas for like some of these panels and presentations that we've been plotting um, to, just to get them seen. And at the same time, you know, between now and, you know, 2020, when everything shut down, I think anything we thought was lackluster, we ditched. Um, you know, and not that we ever have anything lackluster, but you know what I mean? Like things were like, oh, this will be, this will be fine for the show. Like we've really upped our game. So we're just super excited to do it and to have it out there. And, um, and then as a creative also, we're like, we want to have it done because we've got ideas for 2023 already and 2024, like, um, cause we can't do everything we want in a single year. We have different ideas for panels and themes, uh, that we're eager to start moving forward on. We, as a team, we love doing this. So, um, you know, we were looking forward to doing it in 2020 and now it's just, it's extra pent up to get it out there. And, you know, we love it all. Now it's impossible to stop Southern California from doing Halloween, which is a lovely trait we have as you look ahead, because midsummer is always the kickoff of the spooky season. What do you think people should be keeping an eye on in terms of, you know, the events, you know, what are, what are some of the things that you're curious about and what should maybe the immersive crowd definitely be, be uh, focusing on or, or getting ready for when tickets go on sale? I mean, that's uh, in general for the season. Yeah. Yeah. Just in general for the season. In general for the, I like, would, like, this, almost like, what are you like excited about? I mean, that might out you, but you know, well, no, <laughs> what do you play favorites? This is really tricky this year because, um, there's this, I think the, the demand for haunted houses is at an all time high. And for some reason this year, I feel like we have a lot less than we've had in past years, especially pre pandemic. Mm. And I don't, it's, it, it's expensive to uh, start a haunt um, or, you know, a horror themed ex- immersive. Um, so I think people are still coming back cautiously, which I think is unfortunate because now's the time you're going to be uh, having things that people are just going to go to and take a risk on. Um, we have like great stuff coming back. Um, Halloween Horror Nights, we're big fans of. Um, and then, you know, of course, Not Scary Farm is, is just like getting cooler and cooler each year. Um, yeah, there was really there was some really great stuff last year. Um, but in terms of new stuff, you know, we've, there's a lot of stuff not happening, which is a bummer. Um, you know, there's a Dark Harbor uh, due to the ship being down isn't there. But the good news is Shacktoberfest is coming. <laughs> Which uh, I'm I'm pretty excited about. It's uh, it's the team that does LA Haunted Hayride. They're also returning, but uh, Shacktoberfest is going to be more of a festival uh, Halloween. And I'm always excited to see people take on different approaches to Halloween events. And this sounds like it's going to be a good mix of fresh ideas, uh, a festival, and with some scares. But um, that so that will be interesting and something to, to look out for. Uh, and yeah, and I think one thing you can always look forward to with SoCal in the Halloween season, and as it seems to be getting bigger, are the home haunts. And uh, that's, it's hard to call them out right now because you don't know exactly who's coming back. But, you know, the Hall of Shadows is a good place to, to see about 15 versions of them. But there's, you know, dozens and dozens across, uh, you know, from San Diego all the way up to Santa Barbara and out east. And those are free. And you just have to to find them. And, you know, we try to provide some resources for people to find them throughout the year as well. But, um, 
it's just the talent that we have here in SoCal and the energy for Halloween really makes up for the fact that we don't have foliage, um, you know, or uh, actual growing pumpkin patches. But yeah. Um, yeah. so, but every year that gets better and better here. We the art, not the foliage and the pumpkin patches. So <laughs> the climate, the climate isn't shifting. In yeah, a way exactly. That it, and then in terms good. of immersives, um, I mean, I'm always like, if anybody knows of anything that's a horror immersive, please let me know. I mean, it delusions coming back. Uh, yeah. And um, I don't know if that's a secret, but I, th- I think people assume it's coming back. I'm pretty sure it's coming back. Um, and that's just, well, they, the they've listed ever. a casting. So like it's, it's known at this point. Okay, good, so, good. Yeah. Um, yeah, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't break in NDA there. Or anything like that. So. <laughs> uh, but like, that's one of the best things, you know, one of the best immersives ever, one of the best haunted houses ever. Um, so that's always good to have here as well. But, uh, but that said, we need a lot more stuff because people are going to be crowding all of those. And um, so I just encourage anybody who's listening, if they're have an inkling to ever do a haunt or horror experience, you know, go for it, do it. Well, and and heading down to Midsummer is going to be a great way to to get some inspiration and maybe even find ways to do it. So, you know, we're we're sort of thrown back into a, you know a rebuilding period because of the pandemic and the economy and all the other yeah. stuff. But but as you know, like people are hungry, people want to do this stuff, and I always appreciate that. You know, not just in midsummer, but in everything you do all year round. You know, if if for instance someone you know heads over to Burbank and goes around the home haunts there, you'll find the flyer you put out. Like I was, I was going around Burbank last year, just walking around during the day, in like the the, the horror you know adjacent neighborhoods yeah. off Magnolia, and finding you know in little neat little boxes attached to the home haunts. You know the, the the circular you put out that lists yes. all of the other phone home yeah, the haunts. SoCal haunt list. Yeah, which you honestly, know. I I pay for printing on that. All the work goes to Derek Young, uh, who puts that does all the work and legwork on it. And you know, I just it's such a cool resource. And again, it just shows you like the passion for the community that this guy just loves to show it off as well. Um, and it's a great opportunity for me to put the Midsummer Screen branding somewhere, but. Um, it definitely kind of is exactly what, uh, you know, it's, it's what a community is. So yeah. we're really proud to get that out there. No, it's, it's, it's always great to see. Well, David, coming up on July 29th, going through the 31st, the tickets start at just $32 for Friday and then all the way up to a pass that's just $63 for the weekend at the most basic pass. So it's, uh, it's definitely a steal for folks uh, if uh, if. Uh, if Halloween's their thing. And if you're here in Southern California, it, it definitely is. And odds are if someone's in Southern California in Halloween and listens to the show, like they're, they're already headed. But for like the five of you who haven't gone, this is a good year to check it out. So come on out. Help us kick off Halloween. The Games for Change Festival is coming up this July 13th through 16th with the 13th and 14th live in New York City. And the 15th and 16th is going to be streaming online. To learn more about this year's Game for Change Festival and what Games for Change is, we have Games for Change President Susanna Pollock. Uh, Susanna, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. 
Uh, odds are, no pro listeners remember hearing a bit about Games for Change when we talked about On the Morning You Wake to the End of the World, which debuted at Sundance this year and which y'all were involved in. Uh, but let's do the full context here. Uh, Games for Change has been around for a while. What is it? Yeah, well, thank you um, for having a chance to talk about our work. Um, so you're right, we have been around for a long time, for nearly 20 years. Uh, next year, 2023, will mark our 20th anniversary of our not-for-profit. So that's something to kind of bring up uh, at the top. So we are a not-for-profit, and we've been working to support a global community of creators and innovators who are using not only immersive media projects, but we actually started off with games, hence our name, Games for Change. But the those projects that can help people learn, improve our communities, you know, uh, make the world a better place, and generally for social impact. And we work with technology and gaming companies. We work with other NGOs, foundations, a lot of government agencies, and we run a, a range of programs and events throughout the year. Um, things like public arcades, we have design challenges, we work a lot with youth, we executive produce projects like Morning You Wake, but we also have our, what is really our flagship event, which is the Games to Change Festival, um, which takes place each summer. And um, this year will mark our return to something in person. It'll actually be hybrid, but uh, we're very excited to uh, bring it back to New York City. Where where do you find yourself in terms of the state of social impact work in games and immersive media as you're headed into the festival? Well, you know, it's been a really interesting couple of years uh, from the perspective of games, I'll say in immersive media. I mean, we all could admit, you know, there's, there's a lot that's gone on. A lot has changed in the last few years, but as it relates to interactive technology, um, there's just, there's just been a growing conversation and a shift in perspective and how um, our, our culture looks at gaming and what has traditionally been, a, you know, a, a young person's form of entertainment that parents struggle with because their kids are, you know, distracted and politicians have questioned whether it can drive, you know, playing violent video games can, can, you know, lead to real world violence. And it's turned into this other conversation about how gaming can, has been our social platform and lifeline for people all over the world when we were all found ourselves in these, you know, situations of self-isolation because of the pandemic. Um, and at the same time, we've seen games being used in the classroom because teachers are trying to find ways to engage with their other dis, you know, um, disengaged students. And we've seen on the immersive media side and the technology side, you know, VR and digital technologies have become solutions to health inequity as, you know, mental health issues around the world has, has grown and and. Doctors are in, um, you know, in, in in lower demand, not lower demand, lower supply for what the demand is, and that mm. you know, virtual uh, practicing is, you know, is becoming more and more commonplace. So, as a not-for-profit that's been advocating for this work for the last twenty years, we find ourselves in a place where people are more open to it, uh, open to this conversation more than ever, and to have an event you know, coming up in just a few weeks, um, we are, you know, really excited about um, helping grow the community even more and helping bring more of these stories to light so more people get involved and funding comes through and people can be helped using these technologies. 
Now, before I get fully wonky and, and throw some philosophical stuff your way, uh, what's on tap for this year's festival? Okay. Well, we are excited you know, to be able to leverage this hybrid model. So the last couple of years when we were forced to be fully virtual, um, virtual meeting online, not, not in a headset, um, we found ourselves in an unexpected situation of seeing how truly global our community was. When we ran the event two years ago, we had nearly, I think it was over 7,000 participants from over 110 countries. How did and, that compare to like your last time being in person? Well, our in-person event has grown. We thought it's grown to be, to be about 1,000 people. That's like a, a lot of people for us. Um, but, you know, I mean, how many people from around the world can make it to New York from, you know, a, an economic standpoint or a physical standpoint? So, um, so this, you know, was seven times the size of our event and made it, you know, as I said, really feel like a, a global community. And we, we didn't want to disrupt that. We really felt like this is a moment where, um, again, this forced situation that we all found ourselves in has provided some silver linings. So we decided this year to continue with having a virtual presence. We don't want to cut off the rest of our community who who can't come to New York for whatever reasons. Um, so we will continue with that kind of content, um, which I'm thrilled about. So that'll be the latter two days of, of the the last two days of the festival. But going back to what's going to happen in person, we are starting the event off with our annual XR Brain Jam, which we did do virtually for the last couple of years, but it was designed to be an in-person experience where we bring together XR creators with um, domain experts, scientists, researchers, academics that are bringing a field, uh, like their areas of specialty into a collaborative work environment so that XR creators can explore how this medium can drive uh, advance and advance the, the fields of practice for these researchers and scientists. So we've been doing this for the past five years uh, in partnership with Carnegie Mellon's uh, Entertainment Technology Center. And it's a two and a half day collaboration with people who haven't mostly haven't worked together before. Sometimes people join us in teams on the on the uh, technical uh, the technology side, but they are certainly meeting their scientist or researcher that we pair them with. Um, and they'll work together collaboratively for collaboratively for three days. And then at the end, um, this isn't really a competition. It's really more about developing community, which is very much at the ethos of what Games for Change is about. Um, we'll do a, a share out of all this work. Uh, we give everyone an opportunity to showcase their work at the Games for Change Festival, which will start a couple of days later. Um, and we've, you know, it's really exciting. We've seen you know, prototypes come out of this that have received grants from the National Institute of Health. We've seen startups get launched. Um, so that we're so excited to be able to start the festival that way again. Um, and then we move into some workshop opportunities for uh, participants who are coming in town a little early. And then on the 13th and the 14th, we start off with two days of programming, which will include, um, you know, wonderful uh, keynotes and fireside chats, some panels, um, as well as a lot of interactive opportunities to engage with the community. What, one of the things we really are trying to cultivate, I think, at this in-person event is the say is the sense of um, reconnecting with the community and forging partnerships and discovering 
different um, creators and and projects. So we have a lot of networking opportunities that we've programmed in. Um, we call it meet and play sessions, uh, mm. where yeah, where people just have a chance to meet each other and talk to each other, right? Like, like it's been so long. Uh, so we have that going on, and we have our immersive arcade, uh, where we have been uh, curated with our amazing curator, uh, Jesse Damiani, who works with us every year, uh, to showcase a lot of uh, great XR experiences that have you know been released in this past year that we think are really relevant to our our community. And the last thing I'm going to say is our awards ceremony and showcase. So each year we have an awards program that highlights um, exemplary games and XR experiences in, in the sector. And it might be things that are focusing on health or learning or civics or, you know, big global issues, uh, but it's a way that we can celebrate uh, those creators who are applying their skills to, you know, make this world a bit better. Before we get started, there was also some talk about uh, how On the Morning You Wake to the End of the World is going to get incorporated into this year's festival. So maybe you could let us know how that's coming together. Yeah, yeah. We're we're really excited to present it this year because it's it's kind of like a, a coming full circle moment for us. Um, we've been working on this project for a long time. I mean, it was started in 2006 end of 2017, I think, when Princeton University's program for science and global security came to us and said, hey, we, we, we really think that it's time to make some kind of interactive experience that helps uh, raise awareness around global threat, you know, and that it's not a topic that people are really talking about these days, and it needs to be. Um, and it took us, you know, a while to, you know, we found Arches Mark and Atlas V, you know, who had worked together previously on Notes on Blindness. And we put together this great creative team and brought in other experts. Um, but it was at the 2019 festival that we showed a pilot that we produced with our first grant that we'd gotten from the MacArthur Foundation. And it really was from there that we were able to bring in the rest of the funding to make the piece that that was released this year, um, which is the full three chapter on the morning you wake. And so for us to be able to present the piece in its entirety at, as part of our immersive arcade is, is a great full circle moment. And we're going to have another panel at the festival, whereas the first panel that we had three years ago was really focusing on the creative inspiration and what we were intending to make. This is this conversation is really um, it was less about the creative process, but more about what we are doing with the piece now that it's been made, now that it's being released in you know the festival circuit and it's winning awards. Um, what is the impact that we actually can have with this piece, and and the fact that we have a social impact campaign team led by uh, Michaela Chernasky Holland. Um, which is bringing this piece around the world to different venues and different contexts to help raise the conversation around nuclear threat. And so the, so the panel at the festival will really be about that, about what can you, what are the best practices and what can you do with immersive media to actually have the impact that you intended to have as a creative team? And I think that's a whole skill set and a whole kind of industry in itself that we're really excited about helping uh, build. Well, and I'm curious as to how, I mean, when it comes to the NGOs and 
nonprofit organizations, you know, fairly familiar. I think a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but people who are in that world are fairly familiar with how, you know, efforts to outcomes are tracked and the different metrics that people use to sort of figure out whether or not, you know, impact is happening. But the world as it is, is so, you know, kind of increasingly, I mean, for a long time, it has been sort of corporate dominated, like that's where the money, the real money is. Uh, Are you finding that, particularly in in sort of the culturally fraught moment we find ourselves in, uh, are, are the funds coming through to fund these types of initiatives and what are the people on the other side of that funding looking for as, as their accounting measures? Like how are they, how are they measuring impact on, on something like this? Yeah. And that's a really, really good question. And one that we are, you know, actively in the middle of um, hoping, you know, hopefully solving, or as I said, you know, providing some kind of roadmap for others. So in the case of On the Morning You Wake, I mean, it's interesting to look at where the funding came from on this project. Um, so it started off w- uh, as a grant from MacArthur Foundation, but specifically from uh, uh, an area of focus that had to do with nuclear weapons threat, right? So it was the it was the social impact, you know, entity, right? The NGO, or in this case, the foundation that said, right, we, we want to use different ways of communicating about this issue. Um, VR or games at the time we didn't know what it was going to be. You know, let's let's. I'm willing to fund this, and then from there, the rest, the funding for the actual piece came from more on the media side. So it came from public media entities like Arte France, the public broadcaster, and the British Film Institute, um, and Meta, honestly, and v- Meta VR for good. Um, and so now we've got a great piece that's funded what can we do with this piece to get it out into the world and have the impact? We actually now are turning back to the, um, the NGOs and the foundations that are interested in this issue. And that I think is um, critical is that there has to be buy-in from the, from these organizations that there's that innovation is a good thing and finding new ways of storytelling or finding new ways of having impact beyond traditional means is, is worth the investment. And therefore we have to then demonstrate that it was in fact worth the investment. So we have like three or four different funders in the nuclear weapons threat kind of space from Carnegie Corporation to an organization called the Plowshares Fund, one called N-Square. Um, and in fact, Meta is coming back in to help support. Um, and what they are interested in generally on the, on the in the nuclear side is for us to bring this piece around to different audience groups and measure the kind of impact that this is having in different contexts and and that's also something that i think is worth identifying when you think about outcomes mm-hmm. so you know one outcome that we want um to achieve let's say with um with young people and students and and we have curriculum that we've created around the experience so that teachers and and educators in museum settings can actually like have a whole lesson plan around this you know so we so we have this measurable opportunity to sh- see what kids learn through the VR experience um what they learn excuse me with the curricular material that we've designed around it right and ha- and is VR an actually an effective tool to actually transfer knowledge and, and influence, um, intent, right. Or or to take action. And that's very different than, 
when this piece is is being experienced in the with the general public in a museum context or a festival context, we have some very light kind of impact activations that we have before and after people take the um, to watch the experience, and and you have less of an opportunity really to measure the outcome that we can measure through a very light survey what their feeling is pre and post the experience. But that that tends to be then about reach, like how many people are actually able to see this in that setting. Um, and then the third, uh, as a group of stakeholder group that we're presenting this piece to are the policymakers and the activists and having people who are already content matter experts go through this experience and see how they feel having going, th- going through it and how they can actually, they can use this piece in their work independent of us presenting it. Cause that, that for mm. us would be like the ultimate goal was to, is to, provide access to this material to, you know, a, a grassroots organizations that's trying to raise awareness around nuclear threat and have them use it in, in pop-up events or use it at the UN or go to Capitol Hill and use it. Um, so we have, you know, a way to survey their feeling about the piece, their intent to use it, how they think it's going to be useful. Um, and so all of those different stakeholder groups are, are really important to look at the composite of uh, the kind of impact that we can have. Um, so yes, but we're just beginning, to be honest with you. I mean, we just finished um, a three-week engagement at the Nobel Peace Center in uh, at the end of May through June. Um, my team is at uh, the Nuclear Ban Week, um, which is happening in Vienna this week, um, uh, also present at the first meeting of the state parties for the treaty to pro to ban nuclear weapons. And then it moves on to like a New Zealand dock edge film festival and going on. It's like it's in then Hawaii to, to meet with the the contributors who participated in the piece. Um, so we've got all these just great different groups that are going to experience it and, and be able to, we can capture all that feedback. So this last year, we saw the term metaverse come back into vogue. And between that and the NFT crypto surge, NFT NYC is on while we're talking, I get this sense that the tech industry is trying to get another boom going. And I wonder, in your experience, is this an opportunity or a challenge for social impact initiatives to make headway and get attention? Well, I, I see almost everything as an opportunity, and that just could be me um, as just being the eternal optimist um, and, and always trying to put partnerships together to you know, create something special. So while it's, it's a bit unclear, um, I think, on how one can ensure or find opportunities for, like, for the metaverse as a, a form of public good, I do think there are different stakeholders and uh, interested parties that want to ensure that the metaverse is going to operate in a way that has equity and that has a positive intent through it and is structured in a way that benefits society as a whole, as opposed to being a feeding ground for only capitalism and, and, uh, and let's say the dark, the dark side. Uh, but, but I do think that um, what we, but we are already seeing, certainly through games and the games ecosystem and um, platforms that already exist that are versions, early versions of the metaverse, whether it's 
Roblox or Fortnite or you know yeah. Minecraft, um, communities being developed, positive use cases happening within those environments um, to VR, right? And social VR. I mean, we're seeing already it's starting to happen. And uh, we are looking to explore that at the Games for Change Festival. Uh, I'm not like, I don't feel ready to make a statement about how yeah. I feel about it yet. I feel like I'm watching and learning and I want to provide through our event a platform for discussion. And I think that's okay as a not-for-profit, like for us to, to be that platform. And so we have, we actually have so many great uh, people contributing to the event, talking about how the metaverse can be a tool for cultural and environmental conservation, right? How, um, how there can be, how metaverse-driven storytelling formats can, can be developed and that can deepen cultural heritage efforts. We've got this great speaker named uh, Aaron Huey, who is a National Geographic photographer who was one of our, our keynotes uh, on the virtual platform. And um, he's been taking assignments in the metaverse ever since he utilized photogametry to capture ancestral Pueblo structures. And, and mm. he'll, you know, it's, and it's deep work, right. And it's yeah. creative work. And, and, um, hopefully inspiring to, yeah. to many. So we have a lot of like speakers that are, are touching on case studies that, you know, using their work as a case study, as well as kind of more um, trend setting future looking uh, discussions, uh, which, which we're having as well. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm, the thing that I'm always reaching for, and and there's outtakes in this interview of me reaching for it, uh, is when it comes to games and you know metaversal experiences, agency of of the participant is sort of baked in, particularly with games. Right? If if the player doesn't have agency, is it really even a game? Uh, probably no. And I'm wondering if in the, the NGO world and in the social impact world, if there's a sense that these active participant agency heavy pieces have a greater chance of moving people when the call to action comes than just watching a passive piece of media does, right? Like is, is there correlation between action and agency? that's seen? Or is this something that's still being studied? Well, I do believe it's still being studied, but that that is basically the premise of Games for Change, to be honest with you, is, is the fact that this, these interactive forms of media that provide people a sense of agency um, as they navigate an experience does, um, does encourage a different kind of relationship with the content than one that's passively you know, watching um, a, an experience go by, whether it's a linear documentary or a narrative fiction that's about, you know, a topic area. Um, but I also think that virtual reality, whether it's it's an interactive in the way that a game is interactive or it's still more of a 360 video, I think that the, the perspective taking that happens within a VR experience, which you also happen in, in a game as well, is something that can happen without significant interactivity. But I, and I think those affordances equally provide a, uh, an enhanced experience that makes a connection to the person 
who's going through it, because basically both of those scenarios, whether you have agency to make choices in the game or you're looking at something through someone else's eyes, right, in a in a VR context and you're taking the perspective of somebody else, those are are um, and are are experiences that are not like the traditional linear forms of of media where you are watching a third person's experience unfold in front of you. Um, and I think those are the two extremely powerful things about these me- these both these mediums. I couldn't agree more. And that is very, very exciting to, to hear. Uh, Susanna, the festival is coming up the 13th through the 16th with the first two days in New York City live and then the second two days happening online. Uh, there'll be uh, links in the show notes for those who want to check it out. And uh, I hope this is not the last time I get a chance to talk to you. Oh, same here. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> Once again, I want to thank Ryan and Nathan and David and Susanna for being our guests on the show this week. Check the show notes to check out their work. Also check the show notes for the links to this week's office hours and to the dig. Really looking forward to seeing you in November. Uh, we've got a lot planned for the next few weeks. Uh, next week's episode is a special focusing on The Nest. That is Los Angeles's soon-to-be legendary uh, Thea Award-winning experience, which is wrapping its run. Uh, we have uh, Jarrett Lance, Jeff Weber, and the voice of Josie in the nest, Mackenzie Fergins, all on the show next week. Uh, next week's episode's a one-topic show. Uh, the episode that comes after that is episode 350. This here is episode 348. So that's going to be episode 350. It's going to be a team speak episode. We're going to get folks together, probably hitting the week after July 4th, might push it back a week, but I don't think we actually have time to because there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in July. Uh, for those of you who are wondering, yes, we're going to get AMAs going back in the Discord soon, uh, starting to line some stuff up. Also have an eye towards bringing the walkabout mini golf back. Uh, that's in addition to more office hours monthly and looking forward to doing uh, a meetup in uh, Los Angeles, either in July or August. Um, COVID's ripping through everyone I know right now, so kind of think about what can we do outdoors uh much as i would like to like get back to like let's go hang out in a bar um literally the most number of people i know uh have covid right now so please be careful Uh, particularly if you're gathering with the community at any point in time uh in this period of time please be careful uh and uh make sure everyone's being careful because the problem is is that nowadays there's one unmasked person amongst a bunch of masked people. Everyone gets it. Oh my goodness. It's evolved. What do you know? Um, I put bright cheeriness in my voice because I am horrified. Um, you'll note this episode is coming out on a Saturday. Uh, we suspended publishing operations yesterday because of the Supreme court's ruling on Roe versus Wade. Um, this doesn't feel appropriate to deal about business as usual when, uh, you know, large, more than 50% of the population's uh, right to bodily autonomy is just, you know, waved away by some appointees. Really great functioning democracy we have here. Look, I am going to spare all of you 
my political rants. If you really want to see them, I have a personal Twitter account. I tend to keep these streams separate because, uh, you know, I'm long winded. So there you go. Suffice it to say, um, a lot of people, uh, who are very dear to me are, are, and myself are, are feeling a certain way. And that way is not a good way right now. So I needed to acknowledge that, but that's it. That's all here. If you really want to know, uh, you can, you can see over on my Twitter. I'm at Noah J. Nelson on Twitter and I'm putting a lot of things on blast, uh, and trying to run resources and yeah, um, it's all there. It's all there. That's enough. I hope that, uh, this episode can be for you what, what it is for me, which is a moment to step outside of the normal time stream and, uh, look at our craft and consider, uh, the possibilities of what can be. Uh, I'm very grateful that you're spending time with us this weekend. And, uh, this is now an hour and 20 minutes long. So I'm going to let you get back to uh, the real world. There you go. Uh, the associate producer of No Persinium is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. Uh, this podcast, written, edited, hosted, produced, mixed by me. I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>